to the Drabblecast, episode 369. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. H.P. Lovecraft Tribute Month continues here on the Drabblecast with an original commissioned story by Mer Lafferty called In the Walls. But first, we bring you a hundred-word story. This week's Drabble is called Siblings by Doc Awesome. We pulled it off our forums at forums.drabblecast.org, where you can post your own hundred-word stories based on themes that we lay out, which might be picked for next week's show. Give it a shot. It's fun. I never really knew my brother. He was so young when he died. I remember feeling jealous that I would no longer be the sole recipient of my parents' love. But when I saw him, I knew that he wouldn't be around long. He was so sickly and pale when he was born, screaming and pink instead of the normal mottling of gray and green. He was curiously missing scales or tendrils and only had four limbs. I still remember the look in my mother's eye when she laid him on the altar. The old ones were very pleased that day. It's all about perspective. Our story this week, In the Walls, by Mer Lafferty. Mer's a podcaster and writer from Durham, North Carolina. She made her name with podcasting through the hit show Geek Foo Action Grip and the I Should Be Writing podcast, as well as being a longtime host, editor, and wearer of many hats in both the horror fiction podcast Pseudopod and the premier science fiction podcast that I edit and host as well, Escape Pod. Murr's a force of nature, folks. Both as a writer, check out her Shambling Guide series. You'll love it, I promise. I'll link to it in our show notes. And as a speculative fiction editor and internet personality. Murr's been a role model and friend of mine for years. And it's an honor to feature a badass original story of hers for HP Lovecraft Tribute Month this month. Oh, and hey, not to get too sidetracked, but I mentioned Escape Pod a second ago, the other strictly SF podcast I edit and co-host. We just published our 10th year anniversary 500th episode over there, folks, and it's one of my top five, maybe top three favorite short stories ever, a story called The Man Who Lost the Sea by Theodore Sturgeon. We got AMC's Hell on Wheels star Anson Mount to read it, because that's just how we roll. I just wanted to mention it because 10 years, dang, huh? Talk about great old ones. Think about how long that is in terms of internet epochs. This is a particularly special occasion and an outstanding story read tremendously well. Go check out Escape Pod episode 500 at escapepod.org. All right, back to the here and now, or as we're about to discover, the near and then. Without further ado, we bring you In the Walls by Mer Lafferty. The deadliest things in war are not bullets and guns, but hunger and desperation. I'm hungry. 
Penny gets the bed tonight. I'm on watch. Eric is out looting for food and supplies. If he were white, he tells us seriously, the press would say he was scavenging. But for him, it's looting. Not that there's a press anymore. The newspaper we stuffed inside our makeshift mattress were all from three weeks ago. Then the newspaper company was bombed. That was a week after the internet service provider was bombed. And while we all missed the internet, no one missed Comcast. I'm sorry, I'm all out of sorts. I was a research assistant to Dr. Dyer at the local university, but that was before the shelling started. I was working in his office, cataloging the items from his last adventure, when we were hit. I don't remember much after that. Eric and Penny pulled me out of the rubble when they were looking for supplies in the ruins of the university. They patched me up and brought me back here to this boarding house. They tell me we're the only ones here. Eric didn't think I should be guarding. He says my head isn't healed well enough. Not to mention my glasses are somewhere under the rubble of Dr. Dyer's office. But the fact is that Penny needs a break from building all day, and they don't want me to scavenge or loot. Whatever. They definitely don't want me to go back to scavenge in the university, they say. Eric's out now. I said that, didn't I? Penny's asleep. I'm here with my candle and a knife, waiting if the raiders come back. Sometimes I don't see too well and the world doubles, but then it comes back to normal. Waiting is boring though, and sometimes I read to pass the time. Funny. When I read, my vision never doubles or blurs. I enjoy reading about Dr. Dyer's adventures, and am glad we escaped with his journals and some of his priceless goods. When the world returns to normal, he will be happy that we kept his things safe. Eric got injured last night, shot in the leg while trying to get some food out of a locked freezer. Now he and I are hurt, and Penny is suffering from exhaustion. We're in bad shape. I tore up one of our blankets to wrap his leg up, since they used their last bandages on my head wound, but the blanket was pretty dirty. I'm worried about infection. They're both asleep. They don't look peaceful, though. It makes me sad. I wish we didn't have to go out for supplies. But I'm always hearing the scattering and slithering of animals at night. They're in the walls of the house, and if we could set up the right traps, I bet we could catch them to eat. Eric and Penny will be so proud of me. I'm finally pulling my own weight. It was hard work. I had to look through some of our books. I realized I'd never built a trap before. Luckily, one of the books had plans for trapping creatures, and it looked like just what I needed. Thank goodness I had the knife from Dr. Dyer's collection. He may be less pleased with me for fashioning a trap with his knife, but I'd rather be alive and have him angry with me. I used it to carve the sign in the floor that the trap required. That makes no sense to me, but the book was very clear that that was what was needed, and I felt very bad about having to use the knife for that purpose. 
but after all that, the knife is still sharp. I had to use it to cut my hand to bleed in the trap for bait. Now I just have to wait. I can hear gunshots out there, and it scares me. I worry about Eric and Penny and myself. I've stopped wondering when someone is going to save us. We're going to have to save ourselves. My trap caught something. I find this out when Eric shakes me awake. I'd fallen asleep against the wall while on guard, so it's no wonder he's mad. But he is screaming. Not words, just screaming. I ask if we've been raided again, but his eyes are wide and he's gesturing behind him where I placed the trap. Beyond the trap, the door is half open, looks to have been pried open with a crowbar. So we have been raided after all. I ask Eric what is missing, if Penny is hurt, but he is still just screaming. He limps from the room, still screaming. I go to check the trap. I call to Penny that we'll eat good tonight, but I can't hear her over Eric. It's a big, big rat we've caught. It fills the trap, its black body bulging out of the cage. I think it's a rat, anyway. With the beady eyes and the thin tail, it definitely looks rat-like. But it could be a dog. My vision is still bad from the concussion. Sometimes I see two eyes, sometimes four, sometimes eight. Still, I know it's in there. I know nothing is going to survive a knife to the back of the neck. I'm lucky it looks slow and sluggish, as if it were drugged or had just had a large meal. I take Dr. Dyer's blade and cut its neck. It gibbers and cries and then stops shaking. I'd feel bad for it, but that's the old me speaking. The current me who has to survive while the rebels and the military go at it in our previously quiet New England town, that me is not above cutting a dog's neck for some meat. I think it's a dog, at least. Now that it's dead, I can see the shoes scattered everywhere. Bits of shoes, anyway. Looks like they'd been chewed on and spat out. A bloody belt buckle is by the open door. I don't recognize it. I go to tell Penny and Eric to get some water boiling, that we can eat well for at least today, but they're not there. Many of our supplies are gone, and Penny's backpack and coat are gone. They usually don't go out during the day. Too much military activity. It's dangerous to go out. I know that. Everyone knows that. The dog-rat thing is so big, I have to cut open the cage to get it out. I'm not too happy about that. But honestly, this thing will keep me fed for a while. It's getting cold now, and I can hang the body outside so it won't rot. I can build another cage while I eat this one. It's not as hairy as I expected. Dogs and rats have hair, right? This is slimy, its skin almost bubbly. I worry about possible disease, but I'm so damn hungry I can barely wait for water to boil. If I die from foodborne illness, 
at least I'll die full. Eric and Penny don't come back, which makes me sad. I think it was the fact that we got raided one time too many, and that scared them away. Although part of me is wondering if the person who broke in saw me sitting there beside my caged rat and got scared away themselves. I've been told I can be intimidating. The meat is strange tasting. A bit like chicken that has been marinated in screaming sriracha, but it stays good for a few days, so I'm actually doing okay. The carcass hangs outside the front door. I'd rather not invite hungry people to steal from me, but the raiding seems to have stopped in this area of town. No one comes to steal or ask for help. I've gathered some firewood, but the room with the new animal trap stays comfortably warm. I'm nearly done with my first animal and must catch another one soon. My trap is set and I'll bait it tonight with the carcass from the first animal. I hope my friends are somewhere safe and are well fed. I hope that I can catch another animal tonight. I can hear them in the walls closer than ever. And I hope that the carcass of the first one is enough to feed the second one. So it will be complacent when I bring the knife. They say war is hell, but they're wrong. I'm pretty sure hell is in the surviving. And that was our story. Hope you enjoyed it. I love how this story uses the traditional Lovecraft idea of the horrible, unfathomable, unknowable beyond and flips it around. Horrible and unfathomable are indeed relative, are they not? Never underestimate just how bad things can get. Who's to say, for example, that the great old ones don't awake one day from their slumber and return only to immediately get their asses handed to them by intense clouds of radioactive and nuclear fallout, or a noxious world full of CO2 emissions and broiling, chemically saturated seas. Maybe Rillier will never rise from the depths. Maybe the worst fate is for the rest of our planet and civilization to slowly slink below the warming and ever rising seas to merely join Rillier as just another series of submerged and long-forgotten cities with shapes and words that once made sense. I like how this story, as short as it is, depicts the dark horse secret weapon of desperation. Not despair, mind you. Desperation. The things we are capable of when we become capable of less and less things. Sometimes half the battle is simply having lost most of the battle. Those ignorant, resilient, or hopeful enough to survive the despair often become so accustomed to staring into the darkness that they find ways of reaching through it to sustain themselves. Hope you enjoyed it. And hey, now it's time for H.P. Lovecraft's nameless, unutterable, maddening Mad Libs. H.P. Lovecraft's inane, inconceivable, maddening Mad Libs. Brought to you by Subway. Eat fresh. 
Here's how this works. Follow the Drabblecast on Twitter, at the Drabblecast. You might be lucky enough to catch us when we're mad-libbing. We pick a passage from a Lovecraft story and take out a bunch of the purplest purple words. Then throw out requests on Twitter like, need a plural noun, need a ridiculous verb, a hyphenated adjective, need a replacement for the second half of the word, cacodemoniacal. I take what you send me and plug it in, and the result, well... Inane gibbering doesn't quite do it justice. Special thanks to our maddening Mad Lib Twitter participants this week. Chris Pragman, Micah Joel, Dave Bennett, Shane Halbach, Anatoly Belolovsky, Bridget McKenna, Patrick Wakeman, Melissa Brinks, Paul Freeland, Solipsist, Alexis Sloan, The Nosolator, Carolyn Yoakum, John P. Murphy, J.D. Buffington, Valente, and Mega Cartridge. Here we go. Oh, and before I start, quick note. The first half of the first sentence of this Mad Lib hasn't been touched at all. That's original Lovecraft, baby. And that's why this is awesome. The shapeless albino daughter and oddly bearded grandson stood by the bedside. Whilst from the potatoid abyss overhead, there came a phlegmatic suggestion of rhythmical surging or lapping as made by larval owls and their frenetic roombas on some distant craptacular beach. The decidedly Susian doctor present was chiefly disturbed by the seemingly limitless schmurgle hump of whipper-wallop crying their missed a phantasmic message in sneeze-alicious repetition timed onomatopediatically alongside the pants of the dying man. It was uncanny, unnatural, persnickety even. Too much, thought Dr. Aloysius Snuffleupagus, like the whole of this region that he had entered so reluctantly before in response to the strange butt noises reported as of late. Towards one o'clock, old Waitley gained consciousness and interrupted his coitus to choke out a few words to his grandson. More mimes, Willie. More mimes are coming soon. Yeah, she grows. But that strange old mime downstairs, she grows her faster. It'll be ready to serve you soon, boy. Open up the gates. Open the gates to Yogg, sawed off by use of the Oxford comma, boy. You'll find examples on page 751 of the McGiggles edition of What's-Her-Face's thingy. And then, boy, put that old pangolin to rest. Fire from earth. Can't burn it nohow anyways. Obviously, quite ovulating, old Waitley paused, during which the flocks of armadilla die day outside adjusted their cries to the altered tempo of the antebellum yodeling of the brain-eating Nandi bear from afar. Feed it hot 
dogs, Willie, and mind the quantity, but don't let it grow too fast for the place, for if it bursts quarters or gets out afore ye open the mystic gates of yog hurt, it'll all be over and no use. Only them from beyond can make it multiply and work. Only them, Willie, the old uns that wants to come back. More mimes, Willie. More mimes a-coming. Let's close out with our 100-character story winner this week by Shawnee. Here we go. Tightly grasping the ancient sundial's twisted gnomon, I ease it straight. The sun roars and lurches. Darkness falls. One hundred character stories, not counting spaces, we call them twabbles. We have a weekly contest in our discussion forums at forums.drabblecast.org, where you might be next week's winner. Give it a shot, post one. Follow us on Twitter at the Treblecast. Well, folks, that's our show this week. Remember, the Treblecast is brought to you with the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. Remember, the Treblecast runs off the generous support of listeners such as yourself. Please consider donating to the show via the support links off our website, Treblecast.org. Your support makes all the difference. Otherwise, why not tell a friend about us, blog about us, or write us a review on iTunes? Spread the weird. Special thanks to our episode artist this week, Hannah Holloway. Hannah's an illustrator who's spending this next year traveling across the Midwest learning pharmacy and other forbidden eldritch arts. You can find her work at heholloway.com. Our program this week was brought to you by Chief Editor Nathan Lee, our art director, Bo Kyer, with additional help from Nikki Drayden, Tom Baker, David Carvin, and David Steffen. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, I'm Norm Sherman, reminding you, we're going to have to save ourselves. <laughs>